Welcome to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm Carter McNish, and with me today is Charles Stanley, the author of the book Lost Airmen. Hello, Mr. Stanley. Could you uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm, uh, by way of background, I'm uh, a retired uh, New York State uh, civil servant, but uh I've been working on the book for the last uh, 20 years or so, so uh, I think that's what's uh, what's relevant to your listeners. Indeed. So, regarding the book, uh, what was the research process that went into that? Uh, could you tell us about the men that you were talking to and all that? Sure. Um, well, it began when I was uh, when we when we discovered uh, my. Uh, parents' uh, letters back and forth. They met during the war, and they corresponded through the war. And um, they, uh, between the two of them, they had 1,200 letters. And uh, when when I started uh, reading them, I realized they were a treasure trove of um, historical information. And uh, I decided to, to look deeper into my father's background. And once I did, I, I discovered that he was part of a, of a really good story. And uh, I thought it would make a good book and uh, began researching it. Uh, the, the real problem, though, was that, uh, is that nobody had ever written on the subject before. It's, um, it's about airmen shot down over Yugoslavia during World War II and helped by the partisans. And, in fact, there are, there are very few books about, about any, of, uh, at least in English, about the war in Yugoslavia, about how partisans... There is no other book that talks about how partisans helped airmen. And, um, you know, putting all that together from scratch was was really the challenge. Indeed. And you were talking about how this was about airmen shot down over Yugoslavia. Could you just tell us a little bit about what was going on in Yugoslavia at this point in the war? Well, you know, Yugoslavia was kind of an artificial construct that was a result of the Versailles Conference. And uh, basically what... Uh, what the people in Paris did was throw together a country that was uh, not really a country. It was several nationalities, including, um, you know, modern, uh, let's see, Slovenia, Serbia, Croatia, Bosnia, Macedonia. Um, and, um, you know, it, 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 it was really an artificial construct, although there was a movement of uh, pan-Slavism at the time that was probably the uh, the genesis of all that. But Hitler invaded it um, just prior to his invasion of Russia because he he didn't want his, you know, looking eastward, he didn't want his southern flank exposed to possible intervention by the Allies coming up from the Balkans through Greece or from Yugoslavia. So he wanted to take it over before he attacked Russia, and he did that with uh, dispatch. So fast forward a couple of years, and now we have mm-hmm. Americans flying over Yugoslavia. And they're part of this unit called the 15th Air Force. And I'm curious, many right. people know about the 8th Air Force, but there's not a lot about the 15th Air Force that people know. So could you tell us a bit about them? That is true. The, uh, in fact, the, the, uh, a major recent work on the 15th is called the Forgotten 15th, which isn't, you know, the most glorious title compared to, say, the Mighty 8th. You know, I think most people know of the eighth that flew out of England, and rightfully so. They they comprise the only, uh, basically the the only Western Front that the Allies could mount until D Day, 
when Italy surrendered in 1943, the Allies decided to put uh, uh, air bases in southern Italy so that they could reach sort of the the back end of Germany. And they also thought, uh, it turned out erroneously, that that they'd get better weather flying out of Italy than they did out of England. And uh, Albert Speer, who, you know, most people uh, know of as Hitler's architect, had was also his uh, chief of logistics, and he had placed lots of uh, oil refineries in the eastern Third Reich to keep them out of the range of the Eighth. So really the 15th main job was to attack those oil refineries. And so you were telling us earlier that this book is about your father. How did he get involved with the uh, 15th Air Force? <laughs> well, yeah, I, it, it is about my father. It began with with my father, but it's 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 about all of them. My father's the most prominent figure. It begins and ends with him, but in the end, it's really an anthology that discusses uh, thirteen uh, different air crews. Um, but yeah, about my father, he, uh, you know, he was like like most twenty uh, uh, somethings, early twenty somethings of his time. He was facing the draft, and and uh, they all had the choice of either waiting to be drafted and end up you know, slogging through uh, through the mud and foxholes, or they could join one of the specialized, for, uh, you know, um, armed forces. And uh, my father decided that he, well, he, he couldn't swim, so he didn't want to join the Navy. And, uh, you know, being in the air was really a glorious part of the military at the time, or was considered to be. I mean, this is, this is only, remember, maybe 14, 15 years after Lindbergh had crossed the Atlantic. And and, uh, you know, the, the barnstorming pilots were crisscrossing the country and airspeed records were being set all the time. It was it was really, uh, uh, you know, a pioneering time in aviation and and pilots were considered to be uh, be it at the time. So uh, everybody wanted to be a pilot. And my father qualified. He had good eyesight and and passed all the tests and uh, ended up being a pilot. So now your father has joined the 15th Air Force and he's in Italy. And he's flying these missions over Yugoslavia. And just like so many other airmen, like the ones that you talk about in the book, he ends up getting shot down. How did that happen? Right. So if you're in the boot of Italy and you're trying to fly to the Eastern Third Reich, which is actually now uh, uh, Poland, modern-day Poland, you you have to cross uh, first Yugoslavia and then Hungary and uh, t- uh, to get to these targets. And... Uh, he he was shot down over the same target twice, a uh, place called Blackhammer, which was actually it was two halves, Blackhammer North and Blackhammer South, and together those complexes were the biggest oil refineries in Germany. And uh, the I, I think the, the the reason or, the, or to understand how important they are, you have to realize that just like today, um, Germany. Germany really didn't have oil. Uh, they had lots of coal, but they didn't have any oil. So Germany was was importing oil um, then as well. Uh, they they were getting most of it from Romania when Romania was uh, was part of the Axis powers. But uh, when uh, Ploesti fell and Romania fell to the Russians, really all 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 the Germans had were uh, was coal, and they would convert coal into um, synthetic fuel. And um, and that's what they had. So uh, uh, my father was bombing bombing this uh, complex where they were converting uh, coal to uh, to oil. 
And so after getting shot down, uh, what happened after these men landed behind enemy lines? Well, there are, there are 13 crews that I write about. Most of the most of the men were picked up by the partisans who controlled a good deal of the countryside. Uh, some of them were killed. Um, some of them were captured. And a few of them ended up with uh, the Chetnik fashion, faction, uh, which uh, controlled a, a smaller part of the country. So uh, it's a mixed bag, but uh, and I, I cover all of it, uh, but... Um, but most of them ended up with the partisans, and that's the main uh, thrust of the book. And so what did these men do with the partisans? How did they help them out? Well, it's, it's more the partisans helping them out. The partisans, generally speaking, would uh, protect them from the, uh, from the Germans who were wandering the countryside looking for them. And it's, it's just like uh, you'd see in the movies. You know, they, they'd have these small bands of partisans that would gather them up, hide them in um, local houses, and... And uh, in this case, they shepherded them to a um, small town in the middle of Bosnia called uh, Sansky Most, which was considered to be a, uh, a safe zone, but ended up being um, sort of cut off from the coast. And the airmen couldn't get out uh, for a solid uh, six weeks. How did the airmen get along with the partisans? Was there a language barrier? Was Well, actually, one, one of the interesting things that I found... Uh, and I, it surprised me, although I, I don't, in retrospect, it shouldn't have surprised me, is that pretty much, you know, we are a nation of immigrants. And, and you know, there had been a, a, a huge wave of immigration uh, before and after World War One as people were trying to, you know, escape uh, Europe. And uh, so there, there were a remarkable number of uh foreign speakers on those airplanes. And, and I think of my 13 airplanes, every every one of them but one had a foreign speaker in it who who knew either German or a Slavic language that was close enough to uh, Serbo-Croatian that they could actually communicate. So, so yeah, they, uh, they actually could... Uh, would communicate pretty freely, and and the other odd thing is when you, when you read the book, you you find that that sooner or later all the Americans found an English speaker in the middle of nowhere in in Yugoslavia, and you know miles from civilization. And apparently, what had happened is a lot of Yugoslavians had gone to America, found jobs in Detroit or or some other industrial site um, where where they made. Uh, astonishingly good wages for, uh, uh, you know, by Yugoslavian standards, and they they collected a fair amount of money and, and went home and retired. So there were a lot of a lot of English speakers sprinkled all over this country. Wow, that's you know, it really shows just how connected everything was back then and even now. <laughs> Indeed. So. I'm hearing a bit about uh, the British secret agents. Were there any British secret agents in Yugoslavia that were helping these guys out? Yeah, it's uh, the, the the book is uh, is a spy story as well. So the uh, there were British agents stationed um, um, all over, uh, you know, in pockets with various partisan corps 
uh, all over uh, Yugoslavia with the uh, and and Americans too uh, later on. But but uh, the guys I write about uh, were found uh, or were helped by uh, British agents. But yeah, the, the the British or the the Allies considered Yugoslavia to be sort of largely Brit, a British sphere of of influence, and and they they sort of let the British go for a while. Uh, it was later in the war that uh, that the Americans decided that they were going to put their own agents in there, but it, so but it was pr- predominantly uh, a, a British uh, SOE um, special operations executive, which uh, you know was the forerunner of uh, of their modern um, spy network, and uh, and they were the ones who helped the airmen um, once they got on the ground. Very interesting. And for those of you just joining us, I'm Carter McNish, and this is Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, and I'm talking with Charles Stanley, the author of Lost Airmen. Now, Mr. Stanley, uh, could you tell us about a couple of the more dramatic moments that happen in the book? The book covers what happens to them in the air and on the ground. So in some cases, the, the you know, the, the drama occurs in the air. So, some of them, uh, you know, I... I when I would interview the airmen, uh, I'd say, okay, well, you were, you know, so how did you get shot down? And, and they'd say, I wasn't shot down. I was, I ran out of gas. And, uh, you know, it isn't that they were shot down over Yugoslavia, most of them. They were shot up over Germany and bailed out over Yugoslavia. Um, but in, I think, two of the 13 cases, it was pure mechanical trouble that, uh, that forced the, uh, the guys to bail out. But I think the most dramatic one in the air was uh, the case of uh, John Wolfe, who, uh, whose, whose plane was so damaged that he was about to go down, and he gave the bailout order. But he had, uh, previously, he had given an order for the crew to lighten the plane, so the guys in the rear of a B-24 who were kind of cut off from the, uh, the rest of the plane, or from the pilot's uh, area anyway, by the, uh, by the bomb bay, didn't hear the order because they had gone off uh, their intercom to uh, to throw out the guns and the gun belts and the flak jackets and everything that was heavy so they might travel a little farther um, and get closer to the coast before they went out. So so the pilot realized that the, uh, the crew was off intercom. The guys who heard the bailout order jumped, but there were still some guys left in the back, and he knew that he couldn't abandon that ship um, or he shouldn't abandon that ship while those guys were back there, and he tried to crash land it and um, sacrificed his life to uh, say, try to save the guys in the back. And in fact, two of them ended up dying anyway, and one survived. So Wolf uh, gave his life to uh, to save another man's life. Now, I suppose one thing that a lot of people wonder, you know, we hear these war stories about guys like Wolf. Unfortunately, Wolf passed away. But these other guys that uh, you talk about in the book, what happened to them after the war? We usually don't get that uh, postscriptum there. Well, I, and and the book does get into that. And um, you know, the I, I think there's a a, um, a sort of general impression um, that um, that that the World War II guys came home and. To uh, ticker tape parades and and uh, were all feted as heroes and and that uh, things went swimmingly for them and it's that's really not quite right. They um, 
um, there were some ticker tape parades and, and, you know, there was no, um, ostracism of them like there was after the Vietnam war. But the fact is they were, they were just so omnipresent that they were kind of ignored. I mean, they were everywhere. When I, when I grew up, everybody in my neighbor's father was a world war two vet and, and really nobody paid attention to them. And, and, you know the the treatment of uh, pro, post traumatic syndrome was um, in its infancy, and and the solution that everybody had to to uh, these guys was to basically um, not ask them about their experiences because uh, a lot of them didn't want to talk about it, and and nine out of ten times um, their families just didn't didn't ask them about it because they thought it was the right thing to do, and we know today that that's exactly the wrong thing to do. You want to get people to talk about traumatic experiences. So uh, that was another uh, kind of interesting discovery as I uh, researched the book. And so a little bit more about your family, specifically your father, um, or rather your mother. Could you tell us a bit about her wedding dress? Yeah, well, my mother liked to remind me as I was researching this, that uh, it's her story too, and and it was, and um, uh, and and I think uh, one of the, one of the things I well one of the things I did try to do as I wrote the book was to make sure that that the role of women was covered in this because war books tend to ignore women and uh, one of, one of the um, this is an aside I'll get back to my mother but um, one of the one of the more interesting aspects of the war in Yugoslavia is that is that the um, the underground the, the partisans used women as, as part of their fighting force. So there were women all over the book um, helping the airmen and uh, and fighting. But in, but in terms of my mother, um, she uh, met my father while he trained, and she was basically his. Uh, uh, she and my father's mother were his support network and they corresponded daily and and she uh, encouraged him and uh, gave him advice and sort of went through the whole process with him so she was a, a truly important factor in his success in becoming a a pilot and then uh and then after the war of course the the romantic story is that uh they got married and uh um as as soon as they were able to to um when they were discharging soldiers, and um, uh, she wore a wedding dress made from uh, the parachute that my father had carried across Yugoslavia. And uh, that story made uh, the local newspaper and was picked up by the wire services, and uh, they had 15 moments of fame, 15 minutes of fame, as they, uh, when it was circulated all over the Northeast. Wow, what a a story. And... You know, it's you got to love the wedding stories like that, where there's so much meaning packed into them. Oh, I still have it. Indeed, that's a great heirloom. I have the dress hanging up right here next to me. Wow, that's I yeah, I'm envious to be able to have that much family history packed into one item. Now, you mentioned interviewing a lot of these veterans yourself, and I was wondering if any of these men were uh, blessed to be still alive. Um, Yeah, I did. I interviewed. Forty of there were basically 130 men involved, and I interviewed 40 of them. 
I uh, I started too late to cut some of them, but uh, luckily uh, some of them had been interviewed by others. So I so I got a pretty complete picture of uh, of what happened to them. Um, in terms of who's alive, there are three of the three of the hundred and thirty men are are still alive to my knowledge, and uh, they're all uh, very sharp, very independent, and. Uh, uh, you know they're they live at home. They're uh, they're at least the youngest of them. I think is ninety six years old. Wow, still going that strong late on. Oh yeah. Well, you love to hear stories like that. Thank you, Mr. Stanley, for joining us. It was a pleasure having you on. Oh, you're welcome. Anytime. And don't forget, you're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, one hundred one point seven FM. I'm Carter McNish. And this was Charles Stanley, author of the book Lost Airmen, available wherever books are sold.